And then we'll sing that number 382 at the end of the service, Majestic Sweetness. Deuteronomy 29. And then I'll just read uh, Article 13 of the Belgic Confession, but if you'd like to follow along with that, that's in the back of our blue hymnal. We'll be considering Article 13 of our Confession tonight. This is Deuteronomy 29, 29, just one verse. Let us hear from God's holy word. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may follow all the words of this law. The grass withers, the flower fades. God's word endures forever. Amen. And then Article 13, page 75, uh, in the back of the blue hymnal. If you'd like to follow along, I'll just read it for us, but if if it helps to see the words. We are considering tonight the providence of God and his government of all things. Article 13 of our confession says this. We believe that the same good God, after he had created all things did not forsake them or give them up to fortune or chance, but that he rules and governs them according to his holy will, so that nothing happens in this world without his appointment. Nevertheless, God neither is the author of nor can be charged with the sins which are committed, for his power and goodness are so great and incomprehensible that he orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner even then when devils and wicked men act unjustly. And as to what he does, surpassing human understanding, we will not curiously inquire into farther than our capacity will admit of, but with the greatest humility and reverence adore the righteous judgments of God, which are hid from us, contenting ourselves that we are pupils of Christ, to learn only those things which he has revealed to us in his word, without transgressing these limits." This doctrine affords us unspeakable consolation, since we are taught thereby that nothing can befall us by chance, but by the direction of our most gracious and heavenly Father, who watches over us with a paternal care, keeping all creatures so under his power that not a hair of our head, for they are all numbered, nor a sparrow can fall to the ground without the will of our Father, in whom we do entirely trust." being persuaded that he so restrains the devil and all our enemies that without his will and permission they cannot hurt us. And therefore we reject the damnable error of the Epicureans who say that God regards nothing but leaves all things to chance. Let's consider this doctrine together as we find it in God's word and as we see it confessed in those who have come before us. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. If we want to inquire into, if you want to gaze at and study the doctrine of providence, we need to understand that truth foundationally and fundamentally. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. Some people may hear that and think that that makes God sound unfair or secretive, that he hides things from us. But the Christian worldview has no problem with admitting that there are things beyond our ability to comprehend. 
And providence not only forces us to admit that, but it causes us to take comfort in just how powerful our God really is. That is what our confession does in Article 13. It works through the doctrine of providence to bring us to a place where we see why it can be such a source of comfort in our lives. But before we get to that comfort, we need to retrace a number of things and recount them according to Scripture to see how we arrive at the secret things belonging to the Lord our God, whether or not we see that throughout all of Scripture. So we're going to spend quite a bit of time tonight reminding ourselves why the Bible leaves us with the conviction that there will come a point where we cannot fully grasp all of the ways in which the doctrine of providence works. We need to give it up to the wisdom of God and see his power and ultimately just take comfort in this wonderful doctrine. So as we consider scripture and consider this notion of the secret things which belong to God, we see that God's word presents us with the truth that there will be things that happen that we cannot fully understand. This is because God is remarkably, remarkably power, powerful, remarkably sovereign, and we are not that way. This brings us to the worship and the praise and the adoration of our great God, but it's foundational to who we believe God is. We see it affirmed even in the first words of Scripture. In the beginning, God created. The psalmist recounts this again and again and again, perhaps nowhere more famously than in Psalm 33. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. And so the psalmist goes through to finish by saying, because of this, let all of the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This is what we've just studied in our confession, Article 12. God is the creator of all things visible and invisible. And it leads us to a place of worship and reverence and adoration. We cannot leave that place if we want to understand the doctrine of providence because there are things that as human beings with finite minds, we will need to fall back on the wisdom of God. It's foundational to what we believe, to the Christian worldview. Hebrews chapter 11. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Author of the Hebrews says this is what Christians are to believe. That God created the things that are seen out of what is not seen. Creation out of nothing. He brings forth the things that compose our universe. Because of that, God has freedom. He has freedom to be God. He has freedom to be Lord. We do not have that freedom. And that gives us a glimpse into what happens when people sin and rebel against God. Uh, They are taking it upon themselves to occupy the place that only God can as the Lord of all of the earth. But not only is God creator and therefore worthy of all praise and adoration, he is also sustainer. He upholds all things each and every moment. And each and every moment is under his command and his care. This is what providence is. That God continues to rule and to reign and to direct all things in our universe. God is not up in heaven recreating everything moment by moment. 
It's, it's not as if he does the same thing as what he did in creation each and every second. No, well, one of the truly amazing things about our world is that God creates the world in such a way that after he has created it, there are these natural processes that move along and help to sustain the world, and yet we still see God's control in all of it. So God can say, even in the book of Genesis, let the earth bring forth, let the earth bring forth vegetation, which means that even right there, as God is creating the world, we, we see uh, the earth, all of these natural processes already beginning. And then, once the work of creation ends... We see these more natural means of, of the world's continued existence come forth. The sun rises and sets. How? By way of the earth's orbit and rotation. The stars move through the sky as a result of the same thing. Right? Our orbit and our rotation of around the sun. Plants go through various annual processes. Fish and birds migrate. The the animal kingdom struggles for existence. But here is the key. In all of it, in every moment, from the smallest thing that happens, you uh, dropping your fork at the dinner table at Sunday dinner, to the biggest, the crucifixion of Jesus, in all of it, everything happens according to the plan and the will and the decree of God. Nothing passes by and happens outside of God's mighty decree. Psalm 119 says this, speaking to God, Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth and it stands fast. By your appointment, they stand this day. For all things are your servants. That is the Christian doctrine of, of providence. All things hold together by the power of God. All things are shaped by the decree of God. But more specifically, all things hold together in Christ. That's uh, one of the advancements that we see in this doctrine in the New Testament. That all things hold together in Christ. We read in Colossians chapter 1. For by him, that is Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him, very simply, all things hold together. It's in Christ that the providence of God, the sovereignty of God is exercised. In Christ and by the Spirit, God upholds all of the things that he has made. And so we begin to peel back the layers of this doctrine and consider it and think about how does it come to touch upon our own lives? If God is in control of all things, what does that say about the choices that we make? What is the the nature of the choices that we make from day to day? If all things, what I'm wearing today to where I go, if all of that is shaped by God's will, his providence, his decree, are we just some sort of robot? Are we automaton doing all of these things that have been appointed and we don't have any agency or freedom? Are we like characters in a movie who, outside of our knowledge, we're sort of just following a script? Is God up in heaven pulling all of the strings? You can boil it down to one specific question you think about sovereignty and providence, and that is this. It can boil it down to one question. What causes or who causes things to happen? When you make a decision, you follow through with it, who caused that? Was it God or was it you? And this is one of the reasons why I 
titled this sermon The Mystery of Providence because there are parts of this doctrine that are simply so mysterious as we consider it from various angles that we cannot untangle it this side of heaven. But let me give you an example to perhaps help us think about this a little bit better. Let's say you know someone who has had cancer. Most of us probably could think of someone right now, but has gone through all of the treatments and surgeries and they've been declared cancer-free with no expectation to relapse into it, right? completely cancer-free, went through all of the treatments, went through everything that the doctors prescribed and they are now healthy. There is nothing in that process that we would technically call a miracle. It was all methods that modern medicine has developed. And so we ask ourselves, did God heal that person? Or did the doctors and medicine and science heal that person? Wouldn't we say both? Can't we say both healed that person? God healed that person and that person was healed through the vigorous work of doctors and nurses and even the scientists who helped develop the means to treat that form of cancer. You see, if we are to affirm that God is sovereign and in control of all things, then we attribute these kinds of things to God. We say God healed that person working through these other means. God healed that person working through these other means. Causes. God is the, as theologians would put it, Reformed theologians would put it, God is the primary cause of all things. He sits enthroned. He's transcendent above everything. He is totally and ultimately in control. He's the orchestrator of history. Human beings are the secondary cause of all things. So our documents of the Reformation talk about this, and this is how we are to think about the doctrine of providence and how. We think of God being in control of all things. But if you notice, when we read the article earlier, what is it that happens when you affirm that God is totally, perfectly in control of all things? Right after that affirmation, usually quick to follow, there's an, an explanation of why that does, make, does not make God the author of sin. Because if you're saying God is totally in control, everything is shaped by God's will, you look out in this world, you think about all of the problems, you think about all of the evil, you think about all of the things that are ugly, wretched, tough to deal with, all of the realities out there, and you say, okay, so if you want to affirm that God is so sovereign and God is so in control, is he then the author of sin? And so our, our documents say, no, no, you cannot say that God is the author of of sin. We simply affirm that he is not that way because there are so many places in scripture that tell us that he cannot be that. And so we think about this and we say, is there some big secret answer to all of this? Is there some, you know, silver bullet to say, yes, that's exactly the way that you have to think about it. And ultimately we have to say, no, we have to understand that God is God. He's infinite. He's eternal in all of his character. In all of his attributes, we are finite. And as we grasp to understand more about God and we lean on the things that he has revealed to us, we understand that as we think about providence, as we think about his sovereignty, as we think about his decree, we lean on the things that he has revealed to us, that he has told us are true, that we need to know for our lives. And we understand that there is going to come a point where we say, my finite mind can't fully grasp that. 
And that's why it's so important to stay in a posture of worship when you're thinking about God. The doctrine of God needs to not only lead us to doxology, worship, but it needs to always be happening within a context of worship. That we stand in awe of this God who has created all things visible and invisible, who continues to uphold all things by the word of his power in his Son and by his Spirit. So we turn to our confession and it says, God rules and governs all things according to his will so that nothing happens without his appointment. That's what we've been saying. Nevertheless, God neither is the author nor can be charged with the sins that are committed. Likewise, uh, a bit of a cousin to our standards, the Westminster Confession says this, God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, now here, here listen to this, because this is interesting, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Right there at the end, they're talking about human beings, the liberty of second causes. God is the primary cause. We, through the choices that we make, we are called secondary causes. And the liberty of our choices is not taken away because God is sovereign. Rather, it is established. How do we understand that? This is really tricky. This is the way that I've explained it the last couple of years with our catechism students. So thought about maybe calling, them up, calling one of them up on the spot and having them explain it to you, but I'll, I'll go for it myself. Here's the illustration that, uh, that I used. When we think about freedom, our freedom as it relates to God's freedom, or in other words, who's really in control, oftentimes we think about that like a pie chart. Okay, God is in control of all things, but I live my life and I understand that I make choices. I decide what I eat for breakfast, I decide you know, where I go when I get into my car, so I have this experience of making choices. And so who's really in control? Well, most people, most Christians would say, okay, so it works out like this. God gets 99% of the pie chart of freedom, and he leaves us this little bitty sliver of freedom. We get like 1% of freedom. Maybe there would be other people who believe in God or other Christians who would say, well, it's more like 50-50. You know, got 50% of God's sovereignty, 50% of man meets somewhere in the middle. A good Calvinist is going to say, God gets all of the pie. I don't really know what that means for my freedom. All I know is that he, he gets all of it, right? He's sovereign. But the thing about that is none of those answers really fully grasps what the Bible says to us about God's sovereignty and his control. If we think about it like a pie chart, we need to understand that there's not one, but, and here's where the students would be able to answer so well, there's not one pie chart of freedom, there are two pie charts of freedom. There's this pie chart of freedom that God has, right? God is free, God is sovereign, God is in control. And then there is this other chart of freedom that is all our freedom. It's related to that one. It's created by God, but God has created us to have agency, to make choices. Uh, and all of that is not in conflict with the freedom of God. This does not mean that we're absolutely free, right? Our freedom exists under the sovereignty of God. And then we read the Bible, and what, is, what do we ultimately learn and know? We learn and know that uh, our wills are attached to evil. Because we are fallen. Because we cannot ultimately choose the good. 
And that is uh, part of the universal sinfulness of human beings. So, um, let's consider a biblical example when we think about all of this. As we think about God's uh, control, his sovereignty, and how it relates to us. In the book of Genesis, the brothers of Joseph want to get rid of Joseph. They don't like him. Uh, He is a bit arrogant in their mind. He's definitely favored by their father. So, they want to get rid of Joseph. So there's a dispute about how they should do it. Should they sell Joseph into slavery or should they just kill him? Just kill him, just get rid of him then and there. Prudence wins the day. One of their brothers, Judah, advises that uh, rather than killing him, they should just sell him into slavery. There's a tribe of people going by. They sell him off and uh, they get rid of their brother. As we read this story in Genesis 37, we're not reading about robots, are we? They're making decisions. They're deciding what they are to do with their brother. Uh, and as far as they were concerned, they, they, it was an open question as to whether or not they would sell him into slavery or kill him. Both things being, of course, wicked and disgusting, but there was a choice before them. And uh, as we know, this, of course, will not be the last time that Joseph sees his brothers. For one day, Joseph will be a leader in Egypt, and his brothers will come down to Egypt looking for help because they are having a famine in their land, they need to get some food, and they will stand before him. And Joseph will show immense grace and love when he does not take his revenge on his brothers, but he forgives them. And what does Joseph say is sort of the summary statement of all that happens in that story. He will say, you intended it for evil, but God intended it for good. See, ultimately, that's what we have to know. That God is orchestrating all things in this universe, all things in his creation for good, for the ultimate result of his glory and the salvation of his people. And that's one of the ways that we need to understand the way in which God's sovereignty relates to human beings and the choices that they make, particularly sinful choices. And so we read... In our confession, it says that God orders and executes his work in the most excellent and just manner, even when devils and wicked men act unjustly. People may intend things for evil, but God intends them for good. 1 John chapter 1 says that God is light, in him is no darkness at all. James chapter 1 says that God himself never tempts anyone, nor can he be tempted because he never sins. Thus, he is never the author of sin. And here, brothers and sisters, is where we admit that this goes beyond our understanding. We are in the deep end of the pool here when we start to think about God's sovereignty and how it relates to our choices. The reason it's so important to maintain a posture of worship is because it helps us to see, for instance, when we read in the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You will worship the one whom you fear, the God whom you fear you will worship, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That means that true wisdom is found in acknowledging that we are not God. God is God. He is the creator. We are the creatures. There are all types of things which we are incapable of understanding, of doing, of knowing. God 
is God, and the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs also says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This means that God is the basis of our knowledge. God is, uh, without God, we would have no reason to think that this world is stable or reliable. We would have no reason to think that tomorrow all of the laws of the universe would remain intact. Everything is stable and reliable because of God. Without God, we would not know anything. And so these two things, knowledge and wisdom, both of these flow from the fear of the Lord. And these two things are absolutely indispensable in the way that we think about providence. I want to think about that by looking at two different ways in which uh, the world challenges this idea of providence in, in the world in which we live. There are many things about our modern world that offer challenges to providence. Here are a couple of them. The first challenge that our modern world poses to the doctrine of providence and seeing God as ultimately in control of all things is uh, our modern world tends to think of the things in our life as givens rather than gifts from a divine giver. What do I mean by that? Well, think about the words of, of Martin Luther who would say that God reveals himself to us in the milkmaid and the baker, who are integral parts of our lives. Martin Luther said that God hid behind them in a sense because when you came into contact with the milkmaid and the baker, you understood that God gave you the good, good gifts of milk and bread through these people and that God was working through them and that you saw the glory of God in the way that he called them to do that in their life so that they could serve others. But what's the reality that we face in our world? Our world is extremely impersonal in these kinds of ways, isn't it? We go to the store, we grab the milk we like. Or if you're like me, you reach way far in the back to try and get the latest date on the milk, right? You go get, get the milk you like, you go through the bread aisle, grab the bread that you like, and rather than seeing the cashier as a gift from God, we tend to see the cashier as a hurdle between uh, us and our food or our enjoyment of our food. So we swipe a plastic card into an electric, electronic machine that withdraws money that exists only as a number on a computer screen. I'm not to say that this industrialized and technologically charged world is evil because it's given many people the ability, a lot more people to have good things than before. But rather it's to say that our world puts us out of direct fellowship with the people who used to be seen in our lives as a direct sign of the glory and the providence of God. So you read the Psalms and you understand that our world provides so many challenges to trusting in God this way. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. Psalm 32, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. In today's impersonal world, oftentimes we can think that our lives are directed more by the market, the marketplace, than our God. And so what do we do? We need to understand that we need the fear of the Lord, to have the wisdom to understand that there's more going on in this world than what we see. That God is moving and orchestrating to bring all of these things together to provide us with the things that we need and the things that come into our lives come forth from the hand of God. 
Another thing is this, and this is really what it boils down to, the problem of evil. If you go back to the time that our country was founded, people would oftentimes refer to God just as the benevolent providence, the one who is in control of all things. And the tendency of thinking back then was that God is going to move the human race uh, slowly but certainly evermore towards a, a happy state uh, of just sort of peaceful existence. But things started to happen, namely the 19th and especially the terrible 20th century. And all of the uh, affliction, all of the violence, all of the killing, all of the war that happened in the 20th century made people stand back and say, well, hold on here. If we're thinking about God as this benevolent philanthropist, uh, this God whom we refer to as the good or the benevolent providence, how are we going to square that with the reality that we're seeing in front of us? Auschwitz, nuclear warfare, Abortion, sex slavery, pornography, tyrant dictators who kill for fun. In that sense, if you're thinking about God only as a philanthropist, it becomes difficult to square with the idea of providence. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. For we know that if God is sovereignly providential, he will tell us all that we need to know in order to be able to understand how do we square the evil of this world, with the existence of God. And so, the secret things belong to God because he is sovereign and he is in control. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what is revealed? Well, there are many things that are revealed. We read in the Bible that God has put his nature on display in this world. We read that the wrath of God is revealed in the things that we see in this world. That the evil and the patterns of sin in this world, that is because uh, this, our human race has rebelled against God. But ultimately what's revealed is Christ. And if we want to understand providence, if we want to understand sovereignty in light of this challenge of the problem of evil, if we want to understand it, we need to understand it through the lens of Christ. Our article of the confession says that we must be pupils of Christ. For it is in Christ that God furnishes us with the best understanding of his will and his word. In Christ, we need to know and understand how providence works. It's the cross. It's the cross where we find the answers that we need. It's not just the answer, but also the source of our comfort. Uh, the cross is the place where we go if we need to understand or understand that we don't understand the things of this world. But the cross gives an answer to many things that we wonder about. People wonder about the evil of this world. The evil of this world, they see it all throughout in, in, in all sorts of places. The evil of this world. People wonder about justice. When will this world be set right? And how do we know that it will be set right? People wonder about love. How can we know that God loves us? People wonder about forgiveness. Are there any chances for redemption? Are there any chances to be redeemed and set right with God? Evil, love, justice, forgiveness. There's one place where we get an answer for all four of those things. And that place is Calvary. The place of 
the cross where Jesus was crucified. You see, the evil of man brought forth as they crucified the Son of God, the only righteous one who walked through this world and he was killed, killed a criminal's death. We see uh, the justice of God as he punishes his son and he sets him forth as a sacrifice to satisfy his divine justice. We see the love of God in Christ. We see not only the love of the Father, but the love of the Son to go forth and to become that sacrifice. We see the possibility of forgiveness with the shed blood on the cross. You see, if we look at this world and you think about it in terms of evil and sin, all of the ugliness, and you say, I can't square God's sovereignty with all of this that I see in this world, whether it be big picture things that affect all of the world or the things in your own life, where you think God has been unfaithful, where you think God has shown himself to to not care about you and your life. You must look to the cross because it's there that God gave his own son, his own son with whom he enjoyed perfect, eternal glory, matchless honor, heavenly glory, heavenly love, heavenly bliss. And God the Father gave that son so that we would not have to continue giving our sons and daughters on the battlefield of this world, fighting for status and fighting for honor and engaging in that rat race that we've been talking about in the Gospel of Luke. God gave his son so that you can know, so that you can have an answer to know that there is something that he will do about evil and justice and you can see his love and you can see his forgiveness pour forth from the cross. Not only is the cross the answer, but it's also the comfort. How do you know that God loves you? How do you know that God loves you in the midst of your difficulties, in the midst of all of the things that, uh, for which you cannot find an answer? You know that God loves you because he gave his son. It's all at the cross. We need to understand providence. We need to understand God's sovereignty. We need to understand the control that he exercises over this world through the lens of Christ. Only in Christ will you understand providence. And so we cling to those things that have been revealed because God has given them to us so that we might know him more, so that we might trust him more, so that we might take comfort in the things that he tells to us and declares to us. So look to Christ and trust in him, rest in him. Know what God did for us at the cross was not only so that we can know in a better sense what he is doing in this world, but also so that we can take great comfort throughout all of the things that we face, that God is our helper in the strife and that he stands for us and he loves us eternally. Let's pray. Father, you are a holy God. You show us exactly who you are at the cross. And we know that there we can see your love for us. We can see the love that your son has for us in his sacrifice. Pray that this might bring us to worship you more and more. This might bring us to this posture of worship, of knowing and seeing that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. So give us that that reverence and awe for you, that we might be pupils of Christ, that we might see and know and understand all things through him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.
Let's uh, sing number 382. We uh, purpose.